welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello, I'm Burhan Kabbai, Head of Content at OnFIF Sovereign Debt Institute, and I'm delighted to be joined by Christian Kopf, Head of Fixed Income at Union Investment, for a discussion on liquidity and volatility in the European government bond market. Uh, firstly, Christian, thank you very much for joining me. Um, looking forward to a very interesting discussion. How has this year been overall for, for the bond market? Well, uh, overall, Bern, it's been the most difficult year, I think, in European government bond market since the Second World War. That has to do with geopolitical problems that we're all facing. The UK historian um, Adam Tooze, who now teaches at Columbia University, speaks of a poly crisis. That was sort of the buzzword that we took away from the IMF annual meetings in DC in October 2022. So we're basically facing a multitude of different problems which are interconnected. We've got the coronavirus pandemic, we've got the war in Ukraine, we've got very high inflation, the highest inflation rates in the euro area, for decades, we've got uh, the fastest and uh, the strongest uh, rise in central bank interest rates in 50 years. And we also have an economic crisis in a number of emerging economies. So each of these crises is a challenge in itself. And uh, uh, simultaneously, they're sort of um, increasing their, their, their meaning for the market and the impact on the market. And they're inter- interdependent. So the whole thing has led to very large losses on European government bond markets and European SSA markets. It's been the most difficult year, I would say, for investors uh, since the Second World War. Yeah. And in a way, I must say that what we've been facing here, you know, is not um, unrelated to the real world. Um, uh, The capital markets are not a casino. They're a reflection of our economic reality. And in the very difficult reality that we're facing in the real world, it would have been surprising if prices had risen. So it was to be expected in a way. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned the the high inflation. Is inflation here to stay? I would. Uh, I don't think that the current levels of inflation are here to stay. So we have a number of factors, which I, you know, the team transitory is in retreat these days. Yeah, and everybody talks about persistent inflation. That said, especially in the euro area, uh, a lot of the inflation is related to the energy price shock we're facing. Uh, and I think that actually the very high levels of inflation that we have right now, the double digit numbers of inflation in the euro area should come down. We uh, expect them to peak uh, in December 2022. And we believe that by the end of next year, inflation in the euro area should fall to around 3.5% because of very strong base effects on declining energy prices. We also have energy price subsidies by the governments in the euro area. And we've got a very weak economic outlook uh, and the recession will also weigh on consumer prices and developments. So even if Inflation will ultimately be somewhat higher than it has been before that crisis. We expect um, that um, structural increase inflation to count to maybe no more than half a percent maximum. And we do expect a a very strong decline in inflation all throughout the year 2023 to levels of around 3.5 percent. In the U.S., we've got a similar picture. Uh, The inflation rate has already peaked uh, in June 2022 at an annual rate of 9.1% and headline inflation has been declining since then uh, consistently. We do see a bit of a pickup in core inflation, the stickiness of core inflation. But overall, we also expect a a strong decline uh, in headline inflation in the United States to a level of around 3% by the end of 2023. So overall, I would say maybe 80% of the inflation will come back uh, to the levels we've seen prior to the crisis. And uh, there will be a slight um, uh, element of structural inflation, which is here to stay. 
and, and central banks have obviously been hiking rates aggressively to combat this high inflation. Um, how much more rate hikes can we expect from the ECB and Fed? Yeah, I think we're approaching the end of that rate hiking cycle. Uh, in the U.S., uh, we do expect the Fed to continue to hike its rates. Uh, we have a meeting on Wednesday this week, and uh, we expect another 75 basis points of rate hikes there. And that should continue until we reach a level of 4.25 to 4.5 percent by the end of 2022. And we actually do not assume further rate hikes in the U.S. in 2023. In the coming year, we believe that the Fed will continue to reduce its balance sheet. As it has already announced, we're going to have an element of quantitative tightening, but we do not expect further rate hikes um, beyond that level of uh, 4.5%. So we're pretty close to the end already in the U.S. And actually, if you look at uh, what the market has been doing over the last couple of weeks, uh, we have seen swings in the 10-year rate, um, but the market is not pricing in further rate hikes at the very front end of the curve. Now, in the euro area, the situation is slightly more tricky because inflation will peak at a later stage than in the U.S., And we actually do expect the ECB to continue to hike its uh, policy rates um, in early 2023. The um, policy rate, which is the deposit rate in the case of the euro area, should reach a level of 2.25% by the end of 2022. And in early 2023, there should be a number of further rate hikes, which could take the deposit rate to uh, 2.75% um, by the end of the first quarter of 2023. That level then should be maintained um, for the foreseeable future. We do not expect um, rate cuts in 2023 in spite of the recession. And we think that, um, you know, the ECB and the Fed are both quite likely to pause here throughout most of 2023. Uh, when do you think the ECB will begin quantitative tightening? I think the ECB will start as quantitative tightening in the first quarter of next year. Uh, and it will start with a passive balance sheet reduction, but not rolling over maturing bonds uh, from its asset purchase program. And we do not anticipate active balance sheet reduction in the form of asset sales uh, anytime soon. We think that uh, it will be enough for the ECB to um, reduce its balance sheet by letting paper roll off. And, okay, and by the way, you. apart from that, you know, apart from the uh, balance sheet reduction from um, Uh, you know, from not from not rolling over maturing bonds in the asset purchase program, there will be a material balance sheet reduction because the long-term refinancing operations that many commercial banks have entered into will, um, you know, be redeemed early because uh, from November 23 onwards, the ECB has rendered the conditions for those long-term refinancing operations much less favorable to the commercial banks. So we expect a big balance sheet reduction just from these LTROs, which won't, uh, which, which, you know, will be repaid early. Okay, thanks, Christian. That's a good sort of uh, macro picture of, of the economy and of inflation and the, and the hiking cycle, which leads us nicely to the SSA market. What, what are market conditions like for the European SSAs and government bonds? Yeah, overall, it's clear that this is a difficult market. Um, and uh, the liquidity has deteriorated and uh, the volatility of um, um, you know, core uh, bond markets is at its highest level in a very long time. You can see that from the move index. Uh, we can see very big swings, um, for example, in German government bonds, yeah, um, which is quite unusual. Uh, at the front end of the curve in the five-year sector, we see uh, intraday swings of 20 basis points from time to time, which is which is quite unusual. We haven't seen that in the past. That said, I think that the SSA market and even the European government bond market has offered sufficient liquidity for our needs throughout 2022. There are difficult market phases from time to time. 
where the bit R spread between those bonds widens and it becomes a bit more uh, difficult to transact, uh, transact in the futures market as well. We've seen the depth of the book in the futures market has uh, deteriorated. But uh, we have never seen a situation where those bonds have become non-tradable. And that's very difficult, for, different from 2020. And it's also different from 2018, where we've had situations of non-tradability in EU government bonds, especially in Italian bonds. Now, uh, what we have seen in the SSA space is that the issue volumes of, um, you know, the EU uh, bonds, which have been issued in the context of the SURE program and of the Next Generation EU program, uh, have, have gone up quite significantly. So that has actually significantly improved the liquidity in that market segment. Uh, and there, we're getting to a point where the liquidity that we, we see in the SSA market, especially in, in certain sec- segments of the SSA market, is even comparable to what we have in the government bond markets. So overall, it's not great, yeah, but it has been sufficient for our needs. And in light of this volatility and, and poor liquidity, particularly, as you say, in European government bonds, how have you changed your investing strategies in SSAs, particularly EGBs? Well, we have, you know, shortened maturity or shortened duration of those um, instruments, mainly by shorting government bonds. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the big story in the SSA market in 2022 has been the widening of swap, swap spreads. Um, you know, those bonds traded, uh, uh, you know, the European government bonds, uh, whether it's Italian bonds or Spanish bonds, trade of the Bund curve, while uh, the SSA's uh, trade of the interest rate swap curve. And um, we've seen a significant widening of uh, swap spreads in the euro area. So the difference between the yield of interest rate swaps and of gov- German government bonds has, has increased to levels last seen in the year 2008 during the global financial crisis. We're talking about swap spreads north of 100 basis points at times. Now, that uh, widening of the swap spreads in our view has been driven by uh, interest rate hedges by commercial banks in the euro area who have used uh, the swap market, and particularly the 10-year sector of the swap market, to reduce uh, the interest rate um, risk on the asset side of the balance sheet. Uh, and that has hit the entire SSA market because it all trades off swaps. You know? So um, that has been a problem for us, um, uh, the, the rise in the swap spreads. What we have done is we've been able to manage the interest rate risk of those instruments quite well just by shorting government bond futures. But uh, we did not really anticipate that widening of the swap spreads. It's been quite a significant widening, and uh, we were hurt by that to, to some extent, uh, by the swap spread widening. Now, in our view, the wide swap spreads are not related uh, to declining solvency of European commercial banks. Uh, we're not really concerned about uh, about that, but they're mainly a, fraction, a reflection of uh, market dislocations related to excess demand for payer swaps uh, from, from commercial banks uh, trying to hedge their books. So we actually see this as an opportunity. And as we approach 2023, we believe that the SSA sector overall offers very attractive valuations relative to European government bonds that holds for the European Union. Yeah, And uh, you may have noted that there is a bit of a controversy here right now. Uh, some German politicians are arguing against uh, an enlargement of the EU issuance program because it's become more expensive for many member states of the of the European Union uh, to get funding via the EU instead of going to the market themselves. So this high prop spread um, should dampen uh, supply to, to some extent. Yeah, And we see it as a, as a great opportunity right now. I mean, if we look into 
2023, and I've got uh, AAA issuers or AA issuers, which are trading 80 basis points or 100 basis points wide to boons without, uh, you know, any rating difference. Uh, I think this is a great opportunity, really. So I think going into 2023, not only do we have yield levels, which do compensate us for, you know, the inflation risk that we're taking, uh, but we see very elevated swap spreads, which make, which render the entire SSA sector quite attractive relative to European government bonds. Okay, that's interesting. So you're still bullish in, uh, in for EGBs, and are you are you being selective for certain other SSA bonds and new issues, or are you or do you see the whole market as as attractive right now? I think the most attractive sectors are, you know, the European Union issuers. So I mean, the EIB, the EFSF, the ESM, and the EU itself. So these four uh, issuers, the E issuers, I think they're most attractive right now. Uh, they're trading wide to France, and uh, that is, um, you know, in our view, a little bit of a dislocation here. And apart from that, I also think that some of the national development banks, such as KFW, uh, offer very attractive premium. Do you think the EU still has room to uh, tighten further, for example, move tight more, more, more closely to France? Absolutely. So, um, you know, we see that, France is trading around 70 basis points uh, through swaps. And uh, in the five-year space, uh, the EU is trading around uh, 36 basis points through swaps. So that's um, a pickup of uh, 34 basis points over France in the five-year sector. And uh, in the 10-year sector, we've got a pickup of uh, 23 basis points uh, over France. So we actually do see significant performance potential for EU bonds uh, relative to France and relative to other EGBs. We, We think that Come 2023, the swap spread um, should start to tighten. And um, at that point in time, we should see significant outperformance of SSA issuers. I think that brings on to the question of the EU, whether it's a sovereign or SSA. Um, How do you view the EU in this respect? Yeah, so that is a very interesting question. Now, we continue to see the European Union as an SSA issuer. We've been covering the EU for many years. And we've been investing in EU bonds even before uh, the EU uh, used, um, you know, the NGU program to become a very big issue. So it, it has always been an integral part of our SSA investment universe alongside with other SSA issuers. Now, the big issuance that we've seen now basically catapults the EU into a different sphere. Yeah, it is a very it's becoming a very large issue and uh, it is. It already has a size which is comparable to a number of uh, smaller EGB issuers um, that, that are out there. But uh, the issuance so far is um, temporary issuance. And uh, we don't actually think that the conditions are in place yet, for example, to establish a, a future on uh, the EU issuance. And that has to do with the fact that um, uh, the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union calls on the European Union to meet all its budgetary requirements with its own resources. And actually, the EU is technically not allowed to run large deficits and fund those deficits in the bond market, um, which is very different from the member states. So as long as that provision in the treaty remains, we actually don't think that the conditions are in place for uh, the establishment of a a future on the EU uh, bonds. And uh, we think that the EU will continue to be an SSA. Now, that may change in the future. I think there are a number of reasons uh, why that should change. Uh, one of the reasons is that, frankly, the EU as it trades today is too cheap, yeah, given its fundamentals. We do have a very good program here in place, um, which can help uh, the EU meet 
the many challenges that it is facing at the present, at present, no, not just uh, the challenges of climate transition, but also, you know, the challenges of um, the gas crisis that we have right now and uh, the challenges of helping out some of its member states and, and also helping out uh, its bordering states, such as Ukraine. So uh, I think the, 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 what has been established here by DG Budget over the last couple of years is, is, is a very professional issuance program, very well managed. Uh, and from a technical perspective, everything is in place in order to turn the EU into a true sovereign issuer. I have no doubt about that. But we still need a treaty change, uh, and we would need uh, either a big increase in the EU's own resources or a treaty change that allows the EU to run budget deficits um, you know, beyond uh, those temporary funding programs. Once that is achieved, I we could see the EU turn into a true sovereign issue. Yeah, it needs a, a permanent presence as a large borrower. And what about the EU's impact on, on capital markets overall? Has it been positive? And what's been what's your thoughts on that? Now, we think that we see the impact uh, as uh, of the EU, uh, not just through the next generation EU borrowing program, but also through the SURE program, as very positive on uh, European uh, capital markets. You know, it, uh, the liquidity, liquidity, I've already mentioned that liquidity has improved uh, a lot. And uh, we also see the EU championing, championing new forms of issuance, uh, and here particularly the, the social bonds, which have been issued in the, in the SURE program. The EU is already the largest social bond issuer in the world. It will likely become the largest green bond issuer in the world in the context of the next generation EU program. And for us, that is very important. You know, I mean, sustainability is at the core of um, our investment philosophy here at, at Union Investment. And we very much welcome those forms of sustainable bonds. We are making uh, large use of them for our investment portfolios. We have a strong demand uh, for sustainable products. And uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a great development that the EU is championing that and is becoming the largest social bond and environmental bond issue in the world. You know, just to say that, I mean, we, we have uh, a scarcity of safe assets in the euro area, but we also have a scarcity of safe assets worldwide. And uh, I think um, if the EU becomes, you know, that, that is, um, some say, the exorbitant, uh, exorbitant privilege of the United States that they, are, that they are a provider of safe assets. And the EU has great scope uh, of developing that as well. The current composition of the, or the European Union is... Uh, uh, far superior to the current composition of uh, the United States. We have uh, a great uh, degree of institutional stability uh, in Europe. And uh, what we need now is to develop our capital markets so that they become a store of value. They can become a liquid store of value for you know, many countries, uh, for countries in Africa, countries in Asia, even in, in, in the Western Hemisphere. And I see great potential for the EU to, to fill that gap and to further develop itself into a core issuer of safe assets in the world. Okay, great. Thanks, Christian. Just before we round up, I mean, I know we talked about the European markets, but um, with, with the volatility that's, that's been happening in the UK, it would be um, also good to get your thoughts on that. Where do you stand on guilt at the moment? Well, I think that um, the problem that we had in the UK is one of a country that has historically always run large current account deficits uh, to the tune of 4% of GDP. And uh, because of the very strong increase in, in, in energy prices and um, uh, the weak economic situation, that current account deficit has risen to 8% of GDP. Uh, on top of that, uh, the UK government is running a sizable fiscal deficit. So, you know, on the previous administration in the United Kingdom, 
wanted to enlarge those deficits even further. And uh, there was even talk about um, questioning the independence of the Bank of England and, you know, talk about, frankly, bullying the Bank of England into monetary financing of government deficits in the United Kingdom. And that got to a point where international investors, in, us included, uh, didn't want to fund that anymore. Yeah. So uh, I think that, um, you know, the, the sell-off that we've seen in, in bond markets is very much related to the rising international deficits, foreign deficits of the United Kingdom, and um, frankly, to a lack of consistency in the macroeconomic program pursued by the UK government. Now, that has been rectified, and uh, we have a new government in place now, uh, which puts a greater emphasis on fiscal sustainability and also on, you know, on not maybe not balancing the national accounts, but not increasing those deficits ever further. There can be a lot of debate about, you know, the ways um, and uh, and uh, the paths that the government chooses in order to pursue that um, more consistent macro policy. But I think bond markets and us, we're not that worried about that. We're, we're worried more about the question whether there is consistent macroeconomic policy or not. And so, you know, you can achieve it in many ways. You can you can cut benefits. Uh, you can raise taxes. If you read the last Article 4 review that the International Monetary Fund wrote on the United Kingdom and the staff recommendations in that report, uh, the MF recommends uh, the UK to implement a wealth tax, uh, to tax excess profits uh, of corporates, and to, do, to use that as a, as a means uh, to improve uh, the, the, you know, the fiscal accounts. Now, the current government may not want to pursue uh, that path and may not want to follow the IMF recommendations, and that's okay. I mean, it's a democratically elected government. They can do whatever they want to. Um, but I think it's, it's very important that the UK, UK pursues that path of a um, sustainable fiscal policy and, uh, and the path towards sustainability of its external accounts. Now, my sense is that the UK is moving in the right direction there, uh, but we have to see whether the announcement of the new government will be followed by actions. And uh, this is why we remain a little bit cautious, I, I would say, with respect to, to the guild market. Do you think there's still uh, long-term damage there and credibility concerns, even with the new oh, government? absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the damage is done. You know, the damage uh, of sterling as an international reserve currency is done. And it didn't just happen uh, in September. You know, there was an episode earlier this year where um, Governor Bailey made uh, some remarks which were interpreted different from the subsequent actions of uh, the Bank of England. And that led to a situation where many people, many investors just abandoned the short end of the of the UK rates market because they thought that the Bank of England has, had become unpredictable. So that was a lasting damage that had been inflicted on the UK yield curve by, you know, by, by the unpredictability of the central bank policies. And now uh, we have a damage that has been inflicted on the long end of the yield curve by the government's actions. So that damage is done and it will take some time if, you know, it will take time uh, until until uh, uh, confidence is restored. The fact is that the UK is a relatively small market um, on the world um, scene uh, compared to other bond markets in the world. And um, it is not a market that we need to invest in. The UK is part of the G10 government bond markets. And it is a market that we can invest in in the same way that we can invest in the Nordics 
or we can invest in Japan or in Canada. But we don't need to invest in Canada, nor do we need to invest uh, in the UK or in Sweden or in Norway. We will do so or in, or in Switzerland. We will do so when we have a predictable monetary and fiscal policy and we see opportunities. And um, the less predictable the UK becomes, the less attractive it is for us to invest there. Okay, great. Uh, and just finally, we're good to get your sort of outlook for next year. What do you see as the main themes and concerns and what advice would you give to public sector borrowers for next year? Well, there are a number of themes. The first uh, big theme is when will we see peak core inflation in the US in the euro area? And when will central banks slow down the rate hikes? And that should likely come towards the turn of the year. And uh, the second theme is that we are now in a setting where uh, the nominal yields that can be achieved in the liquid portion of um, fixed income markets has risen to levels last seen 10, 12 years ago. So the yields that we can achieve in, in the liquid space are sufficient to meet the hurdle rates of most of our investors. They don't have to necessarily allocate in private debt or in, you know, less liquid segments of the bond market, they can go to the SSA market, they can go to cover bonds, even to some EGBs and meet their return hurdles. So I think that we're about to see a big increase in the interest uh, in traditional fixed income instruments. And um, we, we should, we should see inflows uh, into, you know, into, into those, into those products. So, um, I actually think there is a great scope for, um, you know, a return to, to traditional fixed income in 2023. Great. Thank you very much, Christian, for joining me. Well, thank you very much, Bern. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth podcast.